Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This may be the most well-known, most often quoted of Jesus' beatitudes, especially outside the church, and, and rightly so, because when the church is at its best, is this not what we should be known for? Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, what's fascinating about this, when Jesus uses that word peacemaker, he's doing something quite deliberate here. In the Roman Empire, there was only one peacemaker, Caesar. In fact, peacemaker was a title given to the emperor. Now, the bonus extra credit is that son of God was also a title that was bestowed on Caesar. And so Jesus says to these crowds, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. You see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's undercutting the empire with this radically subversive claim. Your king, he says, he makes peace by, by silencing his opponents and killing his enemies. But in my kingdom, it's love for your enemy, laying down your life, praying for those who persecute you. These are the true sons and daughters of God. All of us in recent days, we have watched and we have processed, if such a thing is possible, the, the images of Hamas attacking Israel and taking, uh, killing innocents, taking hostages, among them women, children, elderly, pulled from cars, dragged from, from their homes. And we witness this devastation and the loss of life in Israel, and now with bated breath, we watch the streets of Gaza. And how awful and strange and ironic it is that the place we call holy, this holy land, is once again stained in blood. And there is so much more to be said. And just to acknowledge, I, I am not an expert on Middle Eastern geopolitical strategy. But I thought that um, even just as I'm grateful for Jalen and his willingness to pray for us, and it's not easy to stand in front of 600 people and to pray on behalf of what's happening in such a tense and such a politically and socially loaded moment as this. But I thought as we open up the scriptures together that it would just be good for us to take a moment and come before Jesus, the, the greatest peacemaker who ever lived, who showed us that the only way the only true way to overcome violence and suffering and evil and death is through the cross and through laying down your life. So Jesus, we come before you remembering when you said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And that's the state of our world right now. We ask God that you would lead us in the way of your son through all that is twisted and wrong and evil and as we look to the cross, we see, Jesus, that, that you did not fight back, that your body was covered in blood, but your hands were clean. And we pray that as we open up your word, that you would give us a clear vision and understanding of all that you have done for us, and that you would meet us in these moments and change us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's page 1294 in that uh, Bible there in front of you. I'd encourage you to open that up if you're on the first row. Uh, those Bibles are underneath your seat. 1 Peter chapter 2, we've been walking through this New Testament letter, and we're going to start our reading today 
in chapter 2 with verse 13. This is a spicy one. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll start with verse 13. Here's what we read. Be subject to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle kinds of masters, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example that you might follow in his steps." Now, we're going to skip down to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external or outward, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, down to verse 7, and we're going to end with this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if this is your first time in church here, or you got dragged to church for your niece's baptism today, you picked a fun one. This is one of those Bible passages that at first reading, it's like, wow. I mean, let's just reinforce totalitarianism, slavery, patriarchy, all at the same time. And certainly there have been times through history where these verses have been used to, do, to try and do just that. So how do we handle a complicated text like this? Uh, one way to do it is you bring in a guest preacher on this particular Sunday, but he wasn't available for this Sunday. He's going to be here next Sunday talking about the mission of God to the ends of the earth, but... You're stuck with me today. And just to throw out, again, another disclaimer, there is no way that we can exhaustively cover all of the landmines, all of the questions, all of the tension points in this text in the 23 minutes that Pastor Callum has given me today because we're doing like 18 baptisms this Sunday. So this is not going to resolve every tension or answer every question or fit, you know, just uh, solve every doubt that you have when you come to a really difficult text like this. Doesn't mean we get to avoid it. We're not going to. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, we've, uh, as we're walking through 1 Peter, we've been talking about the Roman world of the first century. 
Peter is writing to some of the earliest Christians who are living in a part of the Roman Empire called Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. Now, what do we know about Rome? Well, first of all, Rome was a very status-conscious society. I mean, you think we've got that stuff going on here, like in a place like Dallas. We don't hold a candle to Rome. Where you were located on the social hierarchy defined just about everything in your life. So, for example, if you went to a dinner party or a social function or you were invited to the cattle baron's ball or whatever the first century equivalent was, you would be seated and treated according to your social standing. And money alone couldn't buy your way into this status. You couldn't just show up and buy 50-yard line tickets to the game because you wanted them. You were seated according to where you were in the pecking order of Roman life. It's a little like going to a Kansas City Chiefs game. Okay, you don't get to buy your way into Travis Kelsey's luxury box. There is only one person who can invite themselves into the luxury box of Travis Kelsey, which loose aside, my daughters on Thursday night for the first time in their life, like they did not want to miss a single snap of the Kansas City Chiefs football game. <laughs> so Swifty Mania does have its perks. Roman culture, if you don't know what I'm talking about here, just talk to one of your neighbors for a little bit and we'll, we'll get to that later. Roman culture was a hierarchy with the people at the very top having all the power and all the privilege over everybody below them, the poor and the marginalized. And there were very few options, if any, for someone who was at the bottom of the society to begin to rise up, pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps. That was not really a thing in the Roman Empire. Now, into the midst of all this, you have this growing it's a small at first, but this growing movement of Jesus' followers. And their way of life could not have been more like in the opposite direction of the way of Rome. I mean, if Rome was about power and privilege and preserving that, Jesus was about emptying yourself and going down and humbling and sacrificing and, and, and laying down your life. So you can just imagine how many collision points along the way Christians were bumping up against as they tried to follow Jesus in an oppressive society. And some of them are starting to feel the heat and the persecution. Because when you start messing with social hierarchies, when you're, when you're walking around telling people stories and you're saying greatness means becoming like a slave or the first are going to become last and the last will be first or that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, that's going to get you into some trouble. Now imagine with me this, let's just say this is a first century church. And Peter's writing to this room, and some of the people in this room are slaves. And they're like, what do we do with our masters? I mean, they're violent, they're oppressive, and now we have this tension because we know, I know that I have been set free in Christ, but I'm still bound to my earthly master. Then you've got some women and some wives in the room, and they've come to faith, and they've tasted this freedom and this dignity that has been given to them by Jesus, but their husbands are treating them like trash. And they're like, what are we supposed to do? Now, one of the challenges that we face in reading a text like this is that our world is just so different than, than what they were going through. And I have actually found it helpful uh, given the diversity of even this family of churches on University Boulevard, I almost 
want to invite you to read and, and see this text through the eyes of some of our brothers and sisters in our Mandarin congregation. Because for some of them, they're, they're worshiping right now in Wind Chapel. When they became a Christian, for some of them, they were cut off from their family. Some of them made the decision, they felt called to return to China to help lead underground churches, and often that comes with a great cost. And so it may help us to read this kind of text um, with those who we are family with. So here's what Peter says, and there's kind of three parts to this. First, he says, you should honor the emperor. Honor the emperor, which at the time, the emperor was a guy named Nero. And Apparently, he was rocking the Euro soccer mullet before that came a thing in recent years. But over the course of his reign, Nero uh, became increasingly hostile toward the Christians. And maybe you've heard the stories how he would dip them in tar and light them on fire to light up the night around the parties that he hosted in his palace. This, this was not a good guy. And yet here Peter says, he says, as you follow Jesus, you need to show some measure of respect for his authority. Now, at the same time, he also says, live as people who are free. Don't you forget your freedom, but don't use it to do whatever you want. And John Tyson has written about this. I'm grateful for some of his insights. Peter basically says, as citizens of Rome, I, want, I almost want you to keep your head down and get on with your life. Follow Jesus, love one another, serve people, seek the common good. And Peter says specifically, I want you to do good deeds, good deeds. Now we hear good deeds and we think of some small act of charity, like I feel better about myself because I dropped some things off at Goodwill yesterday. That's not what Peter is talking about here. Good deeds was a very specific term that referred to the philanthropic work of those who had been entrusted with resources. And he says, if you, he says, if you have been given privilege, so in other words, Peter's talking to those in the church now, those in the room who have means. And he says, if you've been given privilege and you find yourself at these upper levels of the hierarchy, because the church from early on was a shockingly diverse community socioeconomically, and Peter says to those who are wealthy in the room, don't hide under the radar. Do public works that contribute to the flourishing of your city and beyond. And he goes on to say, because when you do these good works, you know what it does? It muzzles the mouths of those who are saying false things about Christians. It silences the haters. It actually makes them look like fools, Peter says. So first thing Peter says to these Christians who are making sense of life and all these collision points along the way, he says, honor the emperor, honor those in authority. But then secondly, he says to servants or slaves, be subject to your masters. Now, anytime, anytime we come to a text like this, it is so difficult given our nation's history and what our African-American sisters and brothers have been through and how verses like this one in 1 Peter chapter 2 have been used for centuries by Christians to justify American slavery. And we could spend an hour just breaking down this part of the text and showing how it has been butchered out of context. To be clear, nothing in this text or anywhere else in the New Testament says that slavery is a God-ordained institution. 
It does, however, acknowledge the reality of slavery in the Roman world, that a third to one half of those who lived in the city of Rome, as best we know, were thought to be slaves. In other words, there, there simply wasn't an economic system in which slavery could not exist in the Roman, in the Roman world. Slaves in Rome were at the very bottom of this social hierarchy, and so Plato once said, how can a man be happy if he is a slave to anybody at all? So just imagine what it must have been like, again, for the slaves who are now in the church to encounter this gospel message that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, and they're like, we've never heard anything like that. And as a result, slaves were drawn to the church where they're treated with with dignity as equals. And yet here Peter urges them to do their job in such a way that they are able to influence those who are above them. He says, submit not just, not just to the good masters, but to those who are unjust. And the word there that Peter uses, those who are crooked, it's the Greek word scoliosis. You get that picture. It's somebody um, who, 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 masters who take, they bend the truth. They punish you unjustly. They're crooked. And here's what Peter says. Servants, even, even though you know, you already know that you're equals, you should submit to your masters in such a way that will win favor in their eyes. And as you do, know that God is watching over you. He sees you, and he will reward you and your faithfulness. Now, it's really important that we don't equate slavery in the ancient world to what we know of in our nation's history. As best we understand, indentured servanthood in the Roman Empire was not based on ethnicity, and most slaves in the Roman Empire, uh, most of them earned their freedom somewhere around the age of 30. Some young people even chose to enter into indentured servanthood as a way of advancing toward the ultimate goal of Roman citizenship. So you almost have to think in terms of there's a pathway toward freedom. And at some point, your master will have a decision of whether to free you and to let you go your own way. So as you live under their rule, do what you can to win their favor. But even if you can't, remember that God sees you and he will reward you. Peter says to the church, honor the emperor. Honor those in authority over you. Slaves, obey your masters. And then finally, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. We've really landed on a lightweight text for Baptism Sunday. What Peter's doing here, again, I want to be very thoughtful about this. He is not, in 1 Peter chapter 3, providing an absolute prescription for this is what a God-honoring marriage looks like for everyone through all of time. Peter is speaking into an existing culture and an existing cultural reality about citizens and emperors, slaves and masters, husbands and wives. And what he's doing, is he's actually setting up here protections for wives that to this point in Rome had never existed. Marriages and romance in the first century, this is again, very different. This is not, let's see what the algorithms match me up with on Hinge and like, does, do they, we both love Morgan Wallen and walks on the beach, like let's just get married. It's, this is very different reality in the first century. Wives were basically, had very little decision in this. Most marriages were arranged by their families or by the husbands and a wife was basically seen as a husband's property. 
And their primary responsibility was to bear children and hopefully male children. And often husbands, they found their romance outside of marriage. So just try and picture again what is going on when a married woman living under the oppression of that social structure, but then along the way, she comes to faith in Jesus. And she's told, you're made in the image of God. And you're part of a new family. We're together with everybody else. You stand on equal footing before the cross of Jesus. And then her husband finds out, and he's not a Christian. And he's like, what is this radical nonsense? And he has all the authority. I mean, he can do whatever he wants to her. Do you see how messy this can get? And so here's what Peter says. He says, live in such a way that your conduct, your respect, your imperishable beauty is a phrase that he uses, that it is so compelling that even though your husband doesn't believe what you believe, he might be won over through the way you live. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, Peter says. Now, some of you may read a verse like that and just say, no, thank you. Like, gentle, quiet, that sounds like weakness. That sounds like a recipe for being a doormat. Well, these are the same words that Jesus uses to describe himself in Matthew 11. Come to me, for I am gentle. I am gentle. And then Peter starts talking about all of this outward adorning, which was quite a thing in the Roman Empire, hairstyles and jewelry and clothing. Uh, We have two daughters, one of them, I'm not going to tell you which one, but she is definitely in the outward adorning phase of life and development, stealing mommy's jewelry, putting on mommy's makeup, where's the engagement ring, honey, Um, braiding her hair just right. It's sort of all things fancy, okay? That's what it's about in our house right now. Well, in the first century, they kind of took it to a next level, and here's just one picture I think we've got. You could find more online. let AI have a field day with this. It's actually quite fun. But I showed my daughter this hairstyle, and I asked if she was interested. She was not interested in this kind of fanciness. Peter says, in a world that is so obsessed with outward adorning and beauty, and that's where you derive your value, that's beauty that perishes. And God sees. God, there's so much in this text about what God sees. He sees your inward beauty, and he says, you are precious. Now, we could stop there, but then we'd miss out on what Peter wanted to make sure was also a part of this conversation. So he's talked to the citizens in the room, and then he takes a moment to talk to the slaves, and then to the wives, but then he says, we're not done quite yet. I need to have a word with the husbands who are here today. In fact, look at how he says this. He says, Likewise, this is how he begins, likewise husbands. What does that mean, likewise? It means husbands in the same manner as the women. I want you to follow their example. Taking your cues from your wives, whom I've just addressed, live with your wives in an understanding way. He says, husbands, when you become a follower of Jesus, you no longer get to act like the husbands out there in the rest of the empire who just Lord over their wives like property. Not in this community. Not in this house. Not anymore. And 
to, to tell you how serious Peter is about this, and I just love this last part. Again, John Tyson draws this insight. Look at the way that Peter ends this. And you may have kind of noticed this at the end of our reading. He tells the husbands, look, you need to treat your wives with respect and honoring them. They're co-heirs. They are equals. And then he adds this. this is how, he says, this is how serious I am. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Isn't that great? It's almost like a veiled, well, actually, it's not even a veiled threat. He just says, husbands, I know you thought that your whole life you've been trained from as a boy growing up, the world revolves around you, the wife belongs to you, you're the one with the power, you're the one with the authority, and you can just kind of do whatever you want. When you become a Christian, you don't just become a Christian version of that. You've got to treat them as co-heirs and equals before Christ. And if you don't, your heavenly father is not going to listen to your prayers anymore. So I think you maybe want to take this seriously as part of the people of God. So Peter says to the church, they're under pressure, they're being oppressed. He says, citizens of Rome, honor the emperor. Let your respect, let your good deeds win people over. Slaves, live respectfully under your master's rule, and maybe you will win favor through your goodness. Wives, Honor your husbands, even though you have found this new freedom in Christ. And who knows, you might even win them over to Jesus when they see this imperishable beauty and goodness in you. But what about if it doesn't work? What if as a citizen of Rome, you try and keep your head down and do your work and you're focused on being a follower of Jesus, but then along the way, you lose your job for being a Christian. Or you try and live peaceably with your master, but he beats you and he, make, he makes your life miserable. What if as a wife, you model the love that you have found in Jesus, but he could care less? What then, what then? And here's what Peter says, and we'll close with this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree by his wounds you have been healed. Peter says at the end of the day, if none of it works, the good deeds, the respect, the honoring, if none of it works, don't give in to anger, don't give in to hate, do not become bitter, and do not give up. No. Lift your eyes to Jesus and see how he suffered well. And I know it is hard, it's so hard for us to make this leap from our world where the cost of following Jesus, even with growing secularism in our country, we are not suffering at a great cost for being loyal to Jesus. At least not yet. But many in our world are, and some in our family of churches today. And here's what Peter says. He says, look at the cross. Look at how Jesus absorbs the hate and the insults and the blows of physical violence and aggression and somehow in his suffering he did not fight back. He chose to love. He chose to forgive. And when you suffer, know this, he sees you and he will reward you one day when he makes all things right.
So Jesus, we fix our eyes on you, trusting that you are watching over us. Help us to find comfort and even the courage to suffer well, knowing you are watching and you are with us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.